You're listening to Sermon Audio from Grace Mosaic, a congregation of the Grace DC Network in Northeast DC. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org. Most of you know that before I was called to pastoral ministry, I was in show business. And there are many skills that one has to acquire in order to hone the craft of acting and singing and dancing and all the Broadway stuff. And one of the skills that you learn is how to speak with different accents. When you're cast in a role, the playwright or the screenwriter may indicate in the script that your character is Nigerian or British or from the American South. And so what you have to do is you have to work on changing your accent so that you can really get into character. If you're going to be a compelling participant in the telling of the story, then you must change the way you speak. I once heard a dialect coach say that accents are a crucial layer of storytelling. Think about it like this. Think about what is lost if a Shakespearean actor were to play the role of Juliet with a southern accent. What's in a name? (laughs) That which we call a rose by any other name would smell as sweet. I didn't say I was good at accents, by the way. Imagine the dissonance of Al Pacino playing Scarface with a British accent. Say hello to my little friend. It's not the same. It's not the same. You simply cannot go on speaking the way that you normally speak if you hope to get into character and compellingly convey the story. And here's the thing. An actor might effectively learn their lines. They may effectively capture the mannerisms of the character. They might even effectively express the emotional range of the character. But if they fail to get the accent to change the way they speak, the character is diminished and the story is less believable. In a similar way, when God calls us to be his people, when he casts us as his beloved, he gives us his script. He gives us his script, the scripture, and one significant piece of wisdom, one skill that we must develop for life in Christ is learning how to speak with a new accent. We must change the way in which we speak so that we can really get into character as God's beloved people. If we're going to be compelling participants in conveying the story of God, then we must change the way we speak because this is a crucial layer of Christian witness and storytelling. Think about what is lost when a professing Christian speaks with the accent of gossip. Imagine the dissonance of a professing believer playing the role of a beloved child of God while speaking with a slanderous accent that tears others apart. In fact, you don't have to imagine it. Just get on social media for a few minutes. In our passage for today, the Apostle James teaches us 
that you simply cannot go on speaking the way you would normally speak if you hope to effectively get into character as a beloved of God and convey his story. A professing Christian might effectively serve others. They may effectively acquire theological information. They might even attend worship regularly and pray regularly and read their Bible regularly. But if they fail to get the Christian accent to change the way they speak, their character is compromised and the story of God is less believable to our neighbors. Our passage for today is one of the most sustained discussions of speech in the Bible. And as James continues to develop his teaching on true faith, on being hearers and doers of the word, he turns his attention to speech ethics. Speech ethics. And in our text for today, we're going to consider the destructive power of our words and the redemptive power of God's word. Those are our two points for this morning. The destructive power of our words and the redemptive power of God's word. So let's take a look at our first point as we consider the destructive power of our words. Now, James opens this new section of his letter with a specific warning to teachers and those who aspire to be teachers, to have that role in the church. Take a look at verse 1. He says, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. James presents the role of teacher as a dangerous calling because it's a wordy vocation that has a higher degree of accountability before God, a higher standard of judgment because teachers are supposed to know better. And so when there is a disparity between the life of a teacher and the teaching of a teacher, they are held to a higher standard by God. They are accountable. We are accountable. Teachers and preachers, more than anyone else in the church, are the most vulnerable to trafficking in unpracticed truths. Teachers can potentially do damage to those whom they teach not just by false or misleading doctrinal instruction, but by compromising the faith of others through a moral life that fails to live up to their teachings. Teachers are the most vulnerable to preaching grace while living disgrace. We are most vulnerable to preaching about love while remaining indifferent to people, preaching about prayer while remaining prayerless, and preaching about mission without making the effort to know our neighbors. Not many of us should be teachers. Teachers are ministers of the word, and so the consequences of stumbling with respect to speech are great for a teacher. And James's point is that sins of the tongue are the most difficult to avoid, so teachers run a greater risk. That's what he's saying in verse 1. And James then begins to move from that specific application to teachers to a more general discussion of speech ethics for the whole community. Take a look at verse 2. James says, For we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, 
able also to bridle his whole body. Now, what James means by perfect is not exactly what we mean by perfect, most likely. The word is teleos, which can mean mature or whole, which is to say that only the mature person, the person disciplined with respect to their speech, is living in wholeness. And then beginning with verse 3, James provides a series of metaphors or illustrations in order to continue to drive his point regarding speech. And these, these metaphors, these illustrations, they were very common in James's day. They were used by rabbis, they were used by Jewish sages, and they were used by Greco-Roman philosophers and, and moral teachers of his day. So James isn't coming up with a, a series of new illustrations here, but he is going to add his own twist. Take a look at verses 3 through 5. James says, If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. Now, if you notice the nature of the metaphors that James is using here, he's referring to things that guide or control and have power. And the unique spin that James gives these common metaphors is that he has changed the emphasis of these metaphors to this. The one who is steering is not the human being. It's not even reason. It's the tongue. And for people in that context, horses and ships were large things of great power that were nevertheless controlled by very small things. A bit. A rudder. And James is saying that the same goes for the tongue. When controlled, the effect is wonderful. Right? You think about a, 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 a horse that's controlled. A horse is powerful. This is like a half a ton animal. But if it's controlled, a, a little girl who's been trained in equestrian can make that horse dance. Same thing with the ship. When, the, when a ship is controlled, it can convey resources across far distances. It can be great. But when uncontrolled, both are dangerous and present disaster. The results are devastating. One's speech, James says, directs the course of their life, and an uncontrolled tongue can deeply shape the future for its owner and those around its owner. It reminds me of this article I read in the New York Times many years ago, uh, and the, the title of the article was How One Stupid Tweet Blew Up Justine Sacco's Life. And it tells the story of this young woman who was about to go on a business trip to Africa. And before she boarded the plane, she sent out a stupid tweet. And she was in the air for 12 hours. And when she landed, her phone was blowing up. And she came to discover that she was the number one trending person on Twitter. And not only were people just devouring her, like just tearing her apart, but then they brought in her employer, and she wound up losing her job. The tongue is powerful, and it shapes the future of its owner. 
James then digs in on the destructive power of our words with a final metaphor. Take a look at verses 5 through 6. James says, how great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. The longer that I live and the, the more that I observe the state of society and the state of large portions of the evangelical church in America, the more convinced I've become that speech ethics is a conveniently ignored teaching of scripture that people fail to take seriously. They think it can be safely disregarded. What God really cares about are the issues pertaining to sexuality and, and you know, justice, which he does care deeply about. And if you've been here any length of time, you know that. It's in the book. It's in the script. But speech ethics is often conveniently ignored. We think we can safely disregard what the scriptures say about our tongues, our words, our mouths, and that somehow you won't land on God's radar. This isn't really a central feature of what it means to be a Christian or to live as God's beloved. But as we read scripture, in addition to James, as we read the rest of what scripture teaches, we can see that there is hardly a sin more pervasively exposed and condemned than sins of speech. If you are a student of the Bible, you will come to learn this. But I just want to give you a sampling of what the Bible has to say about our words. And I'm going to pull from various genres of scripture, different portions of scripture, and I just want you to listen. If you don't believe Russ Whitfield, listen to the words of scripture. With his mouth, the godless man would destroy his neighbor. Proverbs 11.9. The words of the wicked lie in wait for blood. Proverbs 12.6. A worthless man plots evil and his speech is like a scorching fire. A dishonest man spreads strife and a gossip separates close friends. Proverbs 16.27-28. The words of a gossip are like delicious morsels. They go down into the inner parts of the body. Proverbs 18, 8. Death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruit. Proverbs 18, 21. The mouth of the wicked is filled with cursing and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue are mischief and iniquity. Psalm 10, 7. May the Lord cut off all of flattering lips, the tongue that makes great boasts. Those who say, with our tongue we will prevail. Our lips are with us. Who is master over us? Psalm 12, 3. Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Psalm 34, 13. Their tongue is a deadly arrow. It speaks deceitfully. With his mouth, each speaks peace to his neighbor, but in his heart, he plans an ambush for him. Jeremiah 9, 8. 
in Matthew chapter 12, verse 34, Jesus says to the religious leaders of his day, You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And finally, in making his case for the universal sinfulness of humanity, the Apostle Paul says in the book of Romans, chapter 3, verses 10 through 14, None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Now here's how he makes his case. You listening? Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of vipers is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. James is in good company when he tells us that the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. But what are some of the ways that this works out in our lives? How do we actually get this down on the ground? Here are some of the ways that this shows up in our lives. Lying. Lying. Lying can simply be understood as speaking with the intent to deceive. And this often shows up in our lives when the truth will reveal our sin or our weakness or our failure. And it's a way that we try to manage our reputation by hiding our shame and our guilt through deception. At other times, we lie because it holds out the prospect of helping us to get ahead or to stay ahead. And it's evil. Slander. Slander. Slander is when we drag the good name of our neighbor in the mud. It's giving false evidence of wrongdoing. Impugning our neighbor's motives and passing an unjust sentence. It conceals the truth about the character of our neighbor by speaking falsely or speaking half-truths or failing to correct another who is speaking falsely with regard to our neighbor's reputation. It can also show up as speaking the truth with the intent to harm our neighbor. I witness this daily, often at the hands of those who have husband, father, pastor in their bio. I can't tell you how many times I've been accused of not preaching the gospel because I care about justice like the Bible does. And I'm failing and struggling to try and work it out just like everyone else who's deeply concerned about seeing justice. But to claim, to, to just go nuclear, the best way to try and discredit them is to say they're not preaching the gospel. That is slander. That is slander. When we lead somebody to take a view of our neighbor that is not in accord with the truth of who they are and does not look after their reputation, we are being found guilty of slander and it's evil. Gossip. Don't get quiet now. Gossip. Gossip is spreading bad news behind someone's back out of a bad heart. 
It's secretive disclosure of information that is not yours to disclose. You get what I'm saying? When you are trying to secretively disclose information that is not yours to share. When, when, when you are saying something about another person that you would not say if they were present. It's an easy way to think about gossip. It's often based on hearsay and half-truths that you wouldn't say if that person were there to actually speak for themselves. Gossip often veils itself in acceptable conventions such as, have you heard? <laughs> Did you know? You know what I heard? Keep this to yourself. But I heard. <laughs> I don't really believe it, but I heard. You know, I wouldn't tell you, except I know that it will go no further than this conversation right here. And the favorite Christian way of veiling gossip, gossip I, I'm, I'm only telling you this so you can pray for him. Right? Anyone been there? Come on, join me. I only need an only sinner in here. Yeah, that's gossip. And it's evil. It's evil. It seems so pious, but the heart that feeds on sharing and receiving these reports is a tool of hell. And it leaves flaming fires in its wake. It is evil. Flattery. This is not one that we usually come across very often in terms of our thinking and being able to quickly identify it. Flattery. Gossip is saying behind a person's back what you would never say to their face. And flattery is saying to a person's face what you would never say behind their back. The scriptures warn us repeatedly against flatterers because it's destructive and motivated by selfish gain. That's what a flatterer is out to do. It, they, they are out to manipulate another person. It's manipulation masquerading as encouragement. You know, you're so amazing when you really don't think that. But you know that if you stroke them a little bit, pat them on the head a little bit, you might be able to get what you want out of them. They'll be endeared to you so that they will be more manipulable so that you can extract from them what you want from them. Or so that you can get them to be an ally to help you to achieve what it is you want. And it's evil. Innuendo. It's closely related to gossip. But a brief story captures this well. On a naval vessel, a ship's first mate who went on a drunken binge was written up by the captain on the ship's log. And the captain said this about the first mate. First mate, drunk today. And so, to get even, the first mate wrote his own entry a few weeks later. Captain, sober today. You get the suggestion? The innuendo is this is one of the rare days where the captain ain't drunk. You see, innuendo is suggestive. It's, it's a suggestive comment. 
It's an awkward silence when you are asked a question that you're kind of leading them. Did, did so-and-so really do that? And you say, But it gives you plausible deniability because you didn't actually speak it. But you know what you're doing. It's the raised eyebrow. And it's all freighted with the misery of hell, James says. Criticism. And I want to distinguish this. This is deconstructive criticism as opposed to constructive criticism. Deconstructive criticism is reading people in the worst possible light, taking aim at their perceived or actual weaknesses without context or compassion in order to tear them down. It's mean-spirited attack, motivated not by goodness or love of the truth or love of neighbor, but by the critic's own insecurities and the need to fill their own emptiness. Here's the logic of deconstructive criticism. If I can make them small, then I can make myself big. If I can make them look stupid, then I can make myself look smart. Here's a confession. It's the kind of thing that we seminarians back in the day used to do to the pastors under whom we sat on a regular basis. We would sit back after having learned a little bit of Greek and Hebrew this working pastor who that week probably conducted a funeral, showed up for a couple with a broken marriage, was stressed beyond imagination, and his sermon prep time was squeezed, and we would sit back there and be like, he's playing with the text. You know, that, that, now that's an objective genitive, not a subjective genitive. He playing. He ain't doing no exegesis on this. If I make him smaller, it makes me bigger. It's evil. It shows up like that all the time. Rather than stopping to actually pray for our pastors and to ask God to meet them in their ministry so that they can continue to be a blessing to God's people, we put a bullseye on them. But you have to understand that the deconstructive critic, when they do what they do, they're revealing more about themselves than the person they're critiquing. And I want you to recognize it. Whenever someone lays a harsh criticism of another on, on your ears, there's an opportunity for you there. Because remember what James said, every occasion is a trial to see where your loyalties lie. Will you lovingly and gently confront them and say, you know, that sounds like deconstructive criticism. That sounds like you're just taking a pot shot. What's going on? What's up with that? You know, or, or you know, I, I think you're mistaken. I don't think you're seeing the whole picture there. And I, I think that's an uncharitable read. You know? Like the only possible explanation for what you have witnessed is the one that's in your head. And you won't accept any other explanation. You won't give any benefit of the doubt. You refuse to bend and to learn and to really hear. Deconstructive criticism. Sometimes this comes as backhanded compliments. It's like I remember one time an uh, older older person said to me when I stepped down out of the pulpit one Sunday, hey, you didn't screw it up. It's a backhanded compliment, but it's really critical. It's like, what am I supposed to take from, thanks, thanks, 
No, I don't know what to do with you. I just, okay. All right, I know. Backhanded compliments. But it's evil. And I want to say a word to the kids. Kids, you here this morning? Y'all awake? Y'all with me? Kids, have you ever heard anyone say sticks and stones can break my bones, but words can never hurt me? When I was growing up, that was something that, that parents used to say to us kids all the time. But you know what, kids? That's not true. When we use our words to speak meanly to people, when we're mean to people, or when we make fun of people on the playground, or when we, we make jokes about people's clothes or their shoes or the way they look or mistakes that they've made, God says that that's sinful and that's evil. And you know what, kids? We all do things like that. You know, when we get grown up, we just hide it a little better than y'all. But you know what it shows us? It shows us the way we use our words and the way that we hurt people at times. It shows us how much we need rescue from God. So I want you to listen up and hang in there because we're going to talk about that here shortly. All right? Y'all with me? All right. All right. Listen, James associates all of these verbal sins or sins of the tongue with the fires of hell. Much like he associated a faith without works as a demonic faith in chapter 2. He's doing the same thing here. He's making that, that negative association that it's set on fire by hell. This is what that kind of uncontrolled tongue is actually doing. James closes this section with a statement that should haunt us. And verses 7 through 12. Take a look with me. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father. And with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers... These things ought not be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Every occasion in which we speak is a trial, a test that is revealing what's going on in our hearts. Remember that we said that your words are only telling the truth on your heart. Your words are the expert witness that gives testimony to who you really are within. No matter how you try to juke it, no matter how you try to dodge it, your words reveal who you really are on the inside. And not just your words in public, your words in private. The words in your mind. And James has integrated, as a Jewish sage, James has integrated the wisdom of his Lord and half-brother, Jesus. When Jesus said in Matthew chapter 12, verse 36, I tell you, 
on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. I think that this should sober all of us this morning. Does this give you pause about your words and your patterns of speech and the ways that you use your language? We all have spoken words that we wish we could get back. All of us. I, I don't know anyone who needs the grace of the Lord more than me on this. I am as needy as anybody for the Lord's grace in the use of my words. And I wish there are so many times I wish I could get those words back. If I could just reel them back in and try again. <laughs> we all have spewed mean, self-righteous, evil words, whether in public or private. And we will give account. We will. But if James is right when he says that no human being can tame the tongue, then what hope is there for us? What are we going to do on that day? If Jesus were to pull out the recorder and just hit play on your lifetime worth of words, if you have remained unconvinced, that you are in need of a savior up to this point in your life, I hope that this consideration that you will have to give account for your words will give you a sense of just how deep your need is. But I also want you to know that you're not alone. The, the folks who gather in this room every Sunday morning are not people who have arrived as it relates to our speech. But we're, we're starting with this one idea that we need the grace of God that has been revealed in Jesus Christ. And that is our only hope. And that's where we're going to go here in our second point, the redemptive power of God's word. Now, the bad news that James gives us is that none of us is capable of mustering the strength or discipline that's necessary to tame the tongue. Our hearts are so corrupt that a simple drive in traffic, an afternoon with small children, or a few minutes on social media will expose the evil within. This is the bad news about us. But African church father Augustine identified the good news here when he commented on this passage saying this. I'm quoting Augustine. James does not say that no one can tame the tongue, but no human being. So that when it is tamed, we confess that it is brought about by the pity, the help, and the grace of God. The redemptive power of God's word is the only hope for our words. That is our hope. That's how our words are transformed. This is how we are brought to new life. And it's no accident that the scriptures call Jesus the word of God. It's no accident that the writer of the book of Hebrews says that in these last days, God has spoken to us in a son. You know, the beauty part is this. Though our words reveal all the ugliness and the evil in our hearts, 
When God speaks, when God's word goes out, we see the beauty and the goodness and the love and faithfulness of his heart. And when we behold that love, when we behold the beauty of God's goodness to us in the sending of his son, in the communication of his word, that is the beginning of new life and new obedience and new speech patterns and new ways of relating and speaking to the people that are in our lives. It all comes back to the gospel. We see in Jesus God's desire to restore and build us up rather than to tear us down. Imagine how God could have cut us to pieces with his words, given that he knows everything about us and everything we've done wrong and everything we're going to do wrong and all the evil motivations of our hearts and all the sideways actions of, we, of our lives. God, God knows it all. No one is hidden to him. He could have torn us apart, but instead he speaks his words of love over us. He says, how can I give you up, O Ephraim? My heart recoils within me. He is tenderhearted toward us. A bruised reed and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. God tells us that as far as the east is from the west, so he will separate our sins from us. He throws our sins into the sea of forgetfulness when we come to him, acknowledging our need for his grace. The gospel frees us from lying because we don't have to manage our reputation nor hide our shame in our guilt. I love how old school theologians would say, when the devil accuses me of being a sinner, I say, what of it? Christ died for sinners. <laughs> That's good news. We don't have to hide. The gospel frees us from slander. Because when we see what Jesus did to give us a good name by grace, to write our name in the Lamb's book of life, we find the grace to proactively protect the good name of our neighbors. The gospel frees us from gossip, transforming our hearts such that we are so delighted by the good news of Jesus that we have no desire to revel in the bad news concerning our neighbors. We have no space to countenance unconfirmed evil reports about our neighbors. The gospel frees us from flattery because we no longer have to feel like we need to manipulate people to get them to help us get a leg up. We have a good father who is a provider. We have a Lord and Savior who says that he orders our steps. And so we don't have to try and take matters into our own hands by manipulating others to put them in our service. He is for us. Yes. The gospel frees us from destructive criticism because the insecurities that drive this evil speech are more than overcome by the steadfast love of the Lord. You don't have to feel secure, insecure. You're beloved of God. He knows your name. He cares for you. His affection for you is more deep and wide and high 
and broad than yours is for the most precious person to you. You don't need to feel insecure around anybody. And you don't need to try and get a leg up by tearing other people down to make yourself look good. The gospel can heal you from this. The Lord gives a new heart with new motives so that we can gently correct and challenge people, constructive criticism, from a longing for their flourishing rather than destroying them for our own advancement. Our words reveal how desperately we need the grace of the Lord. And God's word reveals just how delighted he is to pour out that grace. And so as I close, I want you to think about a few things to take away here. Okay? A few things to take away. First, I want to encourage you and challenge you to start speaking like someone who's going to have to give account before the Lord Jesus. Just work that into your your, your thinking and, and your prayer life and into your communal life. Work that in. Start speaking as one who will have to give account. Next, I want you to continue. This has been an application multiple times through this series, but to continue to do the inner work. Being reminded that your words are simply disclosing your heart. And do the inner work. If you, you can ask someone in your community or you can observe your own speech patterns, whether that's the, the way you talk to your coworkers, or the way you talk to your roommate, or the way you talk to your spouse or your children, moms and dads out there, covenant parents in this room, how do you speak to the kids? Do you, do, do you come home from worship and say, you know, you, you're giving the Lord praise, and you come home and you're like, what are you doing? What are you doing? Didn't I tell you to get out? Right? Like, <laughs> maybe I'm the only one, right? Now that the Whitfield kids are back in worship, praise the Lord. They can bear witness about the words, right? But, but we have to examine it. Now, listen, we're not going to pull this off perfectly. But the question is, are you going to quickly repent when you realize that you've used your words in, in a way that dishonors the Lord and hurts his image bearers? So, so that's another application I would have you take up is repent quickly. Repent immediately. Like, if you find yourself in a, in a conversation that kind of got sideways, that kind of became gossip, to just be like, you know what, you know what, let's stop here. I, I, forgive me. I introduced a gossipy uh, conversation, and I'm in the wrong. And, and let's turn this around. Let, let's take this in a different direction. This is not fruitful. This is not edifying. This is not good. Um, and, and that's important uh, in terms of, how we begin to break free from this. Quick repentance. Quick repentance. As soon as you notice it, you know what? I just need to stop. Honey, I was harsh with my words, and um, that was sin. Will you forgive me for using my words to, to take a shot at you? Um, I, I, need, I need the Lord's grace. Please forgive me. That will help you in marriage. It will help you in parenting. It will help you in your, in your work life. And I want to tell you this, just because someone shoots those arrows of harsh words toward you doesn't mean that you need to return fire. Sometimes the most go godly thing you can do as it relates to your mouth is close it. <laughs> I'm speaking from experience of having failed in these ways, you know? Um, 
I just want to encourage you on that, on that note. But if you are bold, when you're in community group or, or someone that you're close to in your, in your community group, ask them, do you notice patterns in the way I use my words that are ungodly or, or just dysfunctional or unhealthy? Do I have a, like a complaining spirit or do I, do I often criticize other people or tear other people down? Like just invite them to speak into it. And if you're invited to speak into it, remember that the wounds of a friend are faithful. But the kisses of the enemy are bitter. Right? So don't say, oh, no, no, you're good, you're good. Because James, he says, who, who, who out there has controlled their tongue ultimately? We all have need of repentance here. And it doesn't mean that everyone has the same degree of failure as it relates to speech ethics, but be honest with them. That's an open window for you to be the kind of community that God wants us to be. Next, pray for wisdom. Remember, James told us at the very beginning that we need skill for living, and God is delighted to pour it out on us. But we just have to ask. We have to ask. We have to come to him in dependence. By the power of the gospel, we can now speak with a grace accent, with a truth accent, with a hope accent and a love accent. We can get into character as God's beloved, bearing compelling witness to God's story of redeeming love because of the extraordinary grace he has poured out in our lives. So let us go forth and be that kind of community. Amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast from Grace Mosaic. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org.